Hey, welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, I've got Mark from Mogul. Previously, we had Jamie Skeller come on uh, when he was fairly fresh to Mogul, and now we've got Mark Walburn on, who serves as the CMO. We have a lot of discussion here about his history in games with publishers and Microsoft, etc., the development of that and into esports over the uh, 20 or so years that he's been around in the industry. We have a lot of discussion about how to add value in esports rather than taking from others and the importance in diversifying income streams and not just through signing various sponsors or trying to increase your donations, but how do you actually own your own audience and how do you actually build your own brand and not rely on contracts or contacts with others, but actually bring in some money organically through the things you create and own. It's a good conversation. I think you should enjoy it. I enjoyed it as always. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Mark, great to have you in, mate. We've had a lot of podcasts recently which have been very unfriendly time zones, so it's great to have another Aussie on the podcast in the room in person where I don't have to do this at 8, 9, 10 p.m. at night. <laughs> oh, it's great to be here, Chris. So let's kick off the podcast like we always do before we get into it because we've got a lot Got a lot of uh, notes to discuss today, and we'll try to not make this a, a three-hour podcast, so we can uh, get you to your flight later. But let us know a little bit about yourself. You've been around in the gaming industry for a very long time, and esports industry for a bit short. So let us know about your history. Sure. Look, I um, yeah, I've been in the gaming and video gaming and esports industry for what over over seventeen years now. I started my career in fast-moving consumer goods, uh, which I won't talk about um, in a great length of detail, but it was a terrific uh, training ground and um, really got exposure to blue chip marketing processes and systems early in my career for about eight or nine years at companies like Procter & Gamble and GlaxoSmithKline, but then was uh, lucky enough to pick up a job in the video games industry here in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. It was with Vivendi Games, which um, for folks on the audience who aren't sure who Vivendi Games are. It was the publisher of Blizzard, or the owner and publisher of Blizzard titles. So Blizzard was was one of Vivendi's studios and also had the licenses for all of Sierra's games, including the Valve catalogue a long time ago. So it was great. Uh, Got to launch, you know... uh, (laughs) A mega franchise in Counter Strike, so yeah, it was the marketing lead um, for Asia and Australia when we launched Counter Strike, um, which was amazing, and you know, everyone's familiar that that's still going today. Obviously, run by Valve these days, um, and also was was part of Blizzard when we launched World of Warcraft. So it was the marketing lead all through Asia and China and. Um, uh, um, the rest of the region for the World of Warcraft launch and launched Warcraft 3 and launched Diablo 2 and so I was very lucky to be part of some of the biggest franchises that have launched in our industry and also became mega hits um, from an esports perspective and um, look I was lucky enough to get invited back to Blizzard on a number of occasions and it's different you know when it was um, once was in a 
in an uh, Activision Blizzard capacity when uh, when Vivendi had sold the company, mm-hmm. um, working here in Australia on both the Call of Duty business and also the, the Blizzard business. And then a third time um, purely on the Blizzard business so that my timing was good because it was just as we were launching Overwatch um, and Hearthstone. Um, so, again, was was very lucky to be part of growing those franchises with the team in in Asia and China into um, very successful um, and popular esports franchises that that they they're known for today. Um, and look in between uh, I- you know in between my time at Blizzard I did a uh, just over a four year stint at Microsoft running their their APAC region for gaming so mostly Xbox which is you know a, a, a Fantastic business in Australia and New Zealand. It's a it's mm-hmm. a um, it's a much harder job to sell that in the rest of the region. But they you know the yeah. team did a really good job and got some great traction going in places like Korea and Singapore and other parts other parts of the region. So that was that was amazing experience and. They were good enough to invite me back a couple of years ago to help with help with some projects, um, and now I'm at Mogul. So um, you know, I've been very lucky for someone who grew up in Melbourne and ended up living in Sydney to have uh, been part of the video games industry and be being part of um, growing esports uh, globally. But from I guess its spiritual home as a as a sector out of Seoul in Korea. So I've probably done sixty trips to Seoul. Can speak a tiny bit of Korean. Um, <laughs> But I uh, was fortunate enough to be in the industry as we were building out franchises that really had a big impact on esports, not just in Korea or Asia, but um, globally as as the popularity took off worldwide. So I feel very privileged to have been able to do that sort of work from Australia, um, but obviously I've spent a lot of time on planes to get that done in those uh, different roles. Yeah, I want to talk about a, c- a couple of things first before we go into our topics from there. Number one is I find it... Super interesting, and this is only a thing that I learned, honestly, not too long ago in my life, which was about the difference in um, consoles and PCs adoption in different countries that a lot of people don't realize. Like you were saying, growing up, I didn't know that Xbox wasn't by far the most popular console in the world. That's that's what I thought. All my friends, all I ever talked about was Xbox. Even my girlfriend, that's all she's ever owned, really, is Xboxes. I bought a second-hand PS4 just to play Spider-Man, but that's about it. But then you start to look at other countries and you realize that, you know, Japan... Some other, it's like Xbox basically, you know, is is of very different sizes in there. You compare that to Korea, you compare that to the US and learning and looking at the actual stats that PS4 highly outsells Xbox globally is like almost mind-blowing. And it's very different to me, I guess, to mobile versus PC. That makes a lot of sense because of, you know, getting lower socioeconomic places. Everyone's got a phone for a hundred bucks. You get free data. That's how you use it on Facebook, etc. But I find that Xbox versus PS4 is different. So can you touch on a little bit about the differences between console or PC or mobile adoption in different countries? Sure. And maybe even discounting mobile. Is it a cultural difference? Is it due to marketing? Is it, is it something else? Yeah, I think marketing has a factor. But in terms from a cultural aspect, my research um, gave, has always helped me to understand that um, it's got a lot to do with living room sizes you know if you think about cities like hong kong or mm. um, other parts of the region often the tv is shared by many members of the family right yeah. um so for you know a student or um a teenager in the family to plonk a console in front of the tv and you know ask 
grandparents or, or, or parents to stop watching their, their favourite soap, soap uh, Korean soap TV or um, show or uh, other things that are happening on the TV yeah. was a big ask. So I think it's that, yeah, that right. played that's played a role in the past. Obviously, I'm talking outside of Japan where it's the dominant um, platform. Yeah. Um, so from a marketing perspective, obviously um, being so close to Tokyo, Sony and Nintendo have been able to have success in Asia, but PC really has always been the dominant platform until prior to mobile gaming taking off, of course, simply mm-hmm. because the penetration was there with students owning PCs for, for university or you know people at work having a PC for their work. So um, in terms of uh, install-based access for gaming publishers, there was just that cultural nuance there to begin with. Um, but uh, console manufacturers, especially those located in, within the region, have, have still made inroads where they can in the category. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think I remember, um, you know, moving down to moving down to Tasmania with my family, and we were definitely you know lower socioeconomic ourselves. And my dad was involved in PCs and was able to scrounge me together a PC. But the thing you said about um, the TV in the lounge room was something that definitely resonated with me a lot. I never thought about this before. The yeah, fact it's interesting, of isn't it? you know some of my friends had PCs or had sorry had a TV in the rumpus room and that would blow my mind. They go, "Whoa, you got more than one TV?" But you have to because yeah. there's no way that your parents would stop watching Home and Away or the news or things like that even in Australia at night a lot of the time to let you jump on your console the same way that it was so hard to play, you know, video games online because the phone rings and your dial-up connection cuts out at the same time as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I was I was scrolling through a list because you mentioned like Sierra before and I was scrolling through some of their old games here on Wikipedia and I was like, I know I used to play some Sierra games and I found one, Red Red Baron three D or Red Baron two three D that released that was released that was in ninety eight. Awesome yeah, I played a ton of that as a Well kid. and they were famous for Leisure Suit Larry and you know, I'm showing my age when I talk about these franchises, but also <laughs> Space Quest and Police Quest and King's Quest. But mm. um look, great studio, amazing people, um and it was just an absolute uh Fantastic ride to be there when they also managed the the Valve catalogue. Um, mm. Because you know, I, I, I don't know if everyone knows, but um, you know, Sierra was originally based out of Seattle, which is obviously where where Valve has their headquarters. Mm. And um, it was in the early days of Valve, and and so Sierra did their publishing globally for many years. So it was um, amazing to get to launch. Half-Life 2 and get to launch the original Counter-Strike and we, we launched Counter-Strike Condition Zero before um, Valve decided to start doing it themselves. Yeah, wow. Um, so very interesting times. It's pretty funny actually, I just I just finished Condition Zero Deleted Scenes for the first time. Oh really? I went back okay. and played it. Yeah, my mother bought it and my PC died so I've been gaming on my work laptop which has a low level GPU in it and an i5 yeah. and I was looking at old games on my Steam list and went alright, let's give it a crack. It was hard. I played it on medium and as an ex-CSGO <laughs> semi-professional player it was actually a hard game. Did you play any Half-Life 2? Not really but I had friends that were absolutely obsessed with it. One yeah. of my mates who should be a level designer because he used to design basically whole games in the Far Cry um, level generator. Mm-hmm. Basically, every time I'd come over to his house, he'd be playing a Half-Life 2 mission again. And yeah. he'd just be like, hey, take a look at this mission. I'm like, Brad, I've seen you play this like 17 times. <laughs> He's one of those. Like, I feel like a lot of the time, these Half-Life people, you're either like really, really in it or you're a bit out of it. And I'm, I'm on the bit out of it. Side. Well, even though I was working out of Singapore at the time, but I remember being very proud because I think one of the original modders of the Counter-Strike mod was uh, was was from Australia. So, um, oh, wow. Yeah, interesting times. I'd, I would suggest anyone to go back through, just go to Wikipedia and, and look up Sierra Online 
and have a scroll through some of the games here. Like you were saying, you know, pre-Valve, a lot of these titles. But looking through here, Leisure Suit Larry, the NASCAR games, IndyCar as well, which I played. A bunch. IndyCar Racing 2, I can see here. That's 96. I played that. It's in about grade one, I think, at that time. Um, and I also saw a Diablo expansion in here too. So there's like almost like the forgotten developer or forgotten publisher as, as far as Sierra goes. There's so many like industry-leading titles that, or industry-defining titles that came out of this one this one place. Yeah, it was, very, it was a very productive studio. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because from a business standpoint, um, when Vivendi acquired Activision and merged to become Activision Blizzard, mm. um, yeah, at the time it just made more sense to really double down and focus on the Activision catalogue, which everyone's familiar with, especially you know franchises like Call of Duty, and then just to continue to grow the Blizzard catalogue as well. Mm, for sure. And another another thing I wanted to talk to you about is some of the differences in, in working in the games industry early in the, in the 90s compared to now, and focusing maybe... On some of your thoughts, oh, mate. I'm not that old. It was definitely the 2000s. The so, 2000s. Yeah. So well, the two, the 2000s versus now, and and not necessarily focusing on the obvious difference of everything used to be on store versus everything's online now. But I'm really interested to learn a bit more behind the scenes about wh- where the business focus is. I assume today that you know a lot of people are focused on these yearly releases like Call of Duty. Um, there's a lot of different focus now on um, bi-weekly updates like in Dota 2 and games like that. But I'd really be interested to see how you saw the development happening over the years after, you know, we're at 2000s, you know, we're at 2019 now. Yeah, well, I guess at a high level, um, you know, the, the entire industry transformed in a way. If, if you think about um, the way a Blizzard title used to launch, you'd, you'd, you'd produce millions of boxes, put um, CDs in a, in those boxes and ship them to retailers mm. or to wholesalers who would sell you know through their networks to consumers so or to PC cafes um, within the region for for Blizzard titles so the um, the launch of World of Warcraft changed all that where we sent consumers to a website and so that was a transformation of the business um, and obviously you know that wasn't the first time that had happened but um, I guess it was the start of the MMORPG or the you know um, genre as a category mm. um, and just the success of online games took off from there so it's a very different discipline um, obviously you can still buy products in retail on a disc today that's still a significant business particularly in markets like Australia where our MBN is uh, it still isn't everywhere mm. um, but, but but they're getting there which is great Um but yeah, it's been a huge transformation for the business going from, I guess, a packaging, you know, a box moving business to a services business. So you hear people in the industry talking about games as a service, mm. which is obviously borrowed from the SaaS um, re- reference. Um, but it's really true. You know, you, you need to make sure you're providing that service. You need to make sure you're engaging um, players um, and you need to make sure you're delivering outstanding service. And yeah, that's something that um, I'm in my role as CMO at uh, Mogul. I'm focused on um, every day. It's really important to our players that we're delivering an amazing experience. That um, that they're really enjoying the the matches that they play on our platform. That there's really exciting tournaments that they have um, the ability to play at their fingertips, and it's on the games or the franchises they expect to find on the platform. So, yeah, huge change in the business, but very. Um, exciting business and very um, dynamic business and thrilled to, you know thrilled to to be part of it yeah and i think one of one of the most interesting things to me that came to light and i believe it was through andrew condon from gemba who who um 
broadcaster this whether he came up with the idea or shared it and i've talked about it on the podcast a few times is about games being the place where people hang out now it's no longer the skate park you know he wrote that he realized that his kids were sitting in a Fortnite lobby not even playing most of the time just talking to each other or if they are playing Fortnite, it's not so much about the game it's about either creating content or just talking to each other and i find the same thing with my friends even like a game of mates you know we've we've got a crew of probably 30 of us that they all started in school and they met people through Guild Wars and they switched to Counter-Strike and that's when they met me and we had our flash in the pan of being pros and now we're just casual again. And, you know, we catch up once a year, get an Airbnb, 15 of us in in a certain state and have a bit of fun together. But I find that even, even the ones that I live in the same state with, I barely ever see them unless it's in a video game. We'll play Dota and we'll sit in Discord, but it's not necessarily even for the Dota. It's just for the fact that we'll hang out together and chat. And that's the place that we hang out, no longer going to the pub and having a drink. Yeah, and I think that's a um, really positive and um, joyful side of the, um, of the industry and the experience you can have because, you yeah. know, I think we all know, and you've just mentioned some examples yourself, but we all know um, people or we've all got friends that we found through gaming. So um, it, it is such an inclusive um, and and positive way to socialise. Um, of course, you've got to get the balance right. So, yeah, you, you, you want to get the balance right between gaming and and getting outdoors and, and being active. But, um, you know, the, the positive friendships and experiences that can come from gaming are, are fantastic. I remember, you know, when we were at Blizzard, Mike Morheim, our president, who's you know now left the company, but he always used to say, you know, games can save the world. Um, because the skills that you can pick up when you're gaming around um, strategy, about prioritisation, mm. um about thinking through a number of steps in advance, you know, they're useful life skills that that can serve you well outside of gaming. So mm. yeah, it's a, a really positive aspect to to being a passionate gamer. So coming from from games publishers, developers in the industry, why why esports? Look, for me, I've as I mentioned earlier, I was lucky enough to be in Korea when when it all started. So. Um, yeah, I hope you don't mind me saying, but I guess to a certain extent, I played a role in helping grow the industry, albeit you know on a number of franchises. But you know, Counter Strike, mm. um, Warcraft Three, um, at the time, Starcraft, which was already launched before I arrived, but you know, worked really closely with with colleagues from Blizzard headquarters in in Los Angeles and in the US to to make sure that um, we were investing and and thinking about. Starcraft in the right way and making it accessible to players and mm-hmm. you know, back then um, you know, making sure products were localised so that it was easy for people to understand what was going on in their native language, that was that was a big deal so you know, I feel very privileged to have been part of that working with uh, with colleagues from, from the head office of, of, of either Blizzard or other, other studios around the world um, and with my role at uh, Mogul it was a great way to stay connected with or well, the role I'm in currently in Mogul it's a great way to stay connected with the industry great way to utilise the experiences I've been lucky enough to have in Asia and around the world in a role where an Australian listed business is is going global and so you know off, most days it doesn't feel like work because you're in a category you love an industry you love mm. it's an Australian business that has a serious mandate for growth globally and um We've built an amazing platform and it's evolving every day and I truly believe in, in what we're doing and I know that um, we'll continue to grow and, and continue to attract players from around the world who are going to love playing competitively on our platform. 
So to so to phrase the, the next couple of topics we're going to talk about, can you give us the, the quick elevator pitch in regards to what mogul service offering is to the community? Sure. Look, essentially, we're a pure play online esports tournament platform. Yeah. That's what we do. That's our absolute core business. Mm. So we, we talked a little bit about this off microphone and bring it on microphone now about... Um, the the focus on mogul of running your own tournaments versus utilizing other people to run tournaments on your platform. So, for example, for those people listening, you can you can go through the ASX announcements and see that you've recently partnered with a with a company in India, partnered with teams like Alliance and Team Secret in Australia with Legacy and such to run tournaments on your platform. But in the past as well, with the kind of relaunch into Australia um, before and then and during your tenure, mogul running say the Apex Legends tournament through yourself. So I'd love. For, for you to touch on a bit about that focus now and going into the future. Is Mogul looking to be a place where you're primarily running your own tournaments? Is it looking to be a place where primarily other people will run tournaments on your platform or is it a bit of a mix between? The way we think about content is through the lens of either um, partners who are using our platform or Mogul putting on um, tournaments themselves. So let me unpack that in a little little bit more detail. Yeah. So why don't we start with partners? I mean, we we effectively have p- partners that we cooperate with, where mm-hmm. we do um, joint marketing efforts and we bring the players together to the platform. So a great example of that is the partnership that we've announced a few months ago with Alliance, where um, we both do the marketing, we both promote the Alliance League, which we set up together on mm-hmm. on our on the platform and we both promote that across our channels and to our audiences and we call that second party so we you know we do that together um and it's very much a collaborative effort and then the other model with partners is where we give them our tool suite so you know they can access our what we call a branded hub where they can create a curated customized branded look and feel if you like a mini site within our platform um so tournament organizers love that because they brand it the way they want they can show their sponsors the way they want they can add video they've got chat to service the players um and they can very easily change that from tournament A to tournament B and so on. So we, we basically give them access to our tool suite, whether it's the branded hubs, our admin wizard, which helps them to create tournaments really easily, our command and control um, tool that allows them to administer tournaments really easily, where just one admin can watch up to 500 matches and jump in if there's a, uh, uh, an issue that needs to be resolved quickly and then jump back out. Mm. And they also get to use our global um, payment and distribution platform where you can, once you've verified match results, you can very quickly distribute prizing, which players love because you want to make sure if you've won a tournament and there's $50 on the line, you get paid quickly and efficiently. So, mm. yeah, from a partner perspective, there's sort of the two options there. And, and that, you know, we call that third party where we let, where we give people access to the tool suite. Um, and then when Mogul are putting on the show, when Mogul's creating the content, a good example of that, you know, we announced that two and a half weeks ago, is the um, the SEA Games mm. Esports Online Challenge. So that's where Razor, who's a big partner of ours, asked us, Razor, who's the official sponsor, the, the, sorry, their official esports partner of the SEA Games, mm-hmm. being run out of the Philippines. But obviously there's pl- there's um, athletes from all around the region, um, over, over 11 countries in the region participating. That's a traditional games meet. So there's athletics, you know, there's swimming. And so for the first time, um, eSports is a medal event. And Razor asked us to put on the, the SEA Games eSports online challenge. So um, 
we've put we've we've put that on for them. Um, we're doing all the administration. We're doing the marketing. Um, we're collaborating collaborating closely from a branding perspective, but it's very much um, Mogul that's helping to put that put that tournament on. Um, another good example is the Mogul Ladder Masters tournaments where we're running ladders across a number of popular games both here in Australia, New Zealand and also Southeast Asia um, and it's another way to, to create great content where we see an opportunity in the market that players can jump into and experience. It sounds like there's a lot of focus on the back end and platform and for, for those who've been listening to the podcast for a while I've had Jamie Skeller on here before and you know asking asking him you know why why come back into the esports industry to join Mogul and a lot of his discussion with me was around the the back-end technology that mogul provides is that what you see is as your major advantage over your competitors look part of the reason i joined mogul is when i saw the platform and um saw how well it was progressed um and spoke just before joining about um the aspirations or the vision for where the platform was going having spent so long in the industry i was blown away um and and that was before I joined the company. Um, when we when we show what we're doing to industry veterans, the positive feedback we get is just is 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 amazing. Um, the the feedback we get on our tools, whether it's that tournament wizard, the administration piece, sorry, the tournament was that creation piece, the um, command control, which is the administration mm. piece, or the 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 ease to which you can pay out prizing. Um, and also our branded hub, which is that customised experience piece that's that's player facing, it's super positive. Um, and we can talk about the sorts of customers that we're making those hubs available to a bit later on. Mm. But um, yeah, that's part of the reason I joined because I really believe in the platform. I've spoken to people in the industry who are well qualified to comment about. Um, the capability of the platform and um, it's super positive and a very exciting time for the company moving forward. And where where does the major upside come from you thus far in the expansion? Is it from is it from the B two B aspect where you're partnering with with people like Secret Alliance as such? Is that a is that a great um, user acquisition tool for you as you look to go t- towards more B two C in the future or not and not as much B two B to C? We're a very customer centric company. We put the players at the heart of everything we do. Um, so every decision we make is about how is this going to improve the tournament experience for our players. But we bring players to the platform either by talking to them directly ourselves, um, or you know, with a sort of B two C model or B two C to C approach. Um, and, we, and we wouldn't have a platform without without our players. Um, or we can attract larger groups of players through partners. So the way we think about partners is through different verticals or different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've obviously got game publishers. Um, we recently announced and, and activated a Magic the Gathering Arena tournament with, with Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, the feedback on that tournament by Australian and New Zealand players where we ran that tournament has been fantastic um and it's the largest online tournament that's been run in this market and you know we'll look at um how we bring similar experiences to players um in other parts of the world as we move forward but yeah so game publishers is a is a key vertical for us and obviously when you run a tournament um for a game publisher you have the ability um to attract large groups of players rather than one at a time Mm. um another key vertical 
for us as organisers. Um, yeah, we've uh, over the last few months we've announced a partnership with Serena out of the Middle East, which is a big organiser out there. Um, um, Working out of that region, um, we've announced recently a partnership with AEL, who run the university leagues here in Australia. Um, so working with organisers is another great way to, to still attract large groups of players, but in partnership with those um, partners that, that are using our tool set and our platform. And look, two, the two other verticals are influencers. Mm-hmm. Um, we've announced a big partnership with Tier One, who operate out of Southeast Asia, and they're a, a talent agency for influencers. Um, that was started by Elodia. I don't know if you've seen Elodia, but she's um, a very well-known cosplay um, influencer. Well, not just in Southeast Asia, but also globally. Um, but by working with with a partner like Tier One. It's um, a good example of the influence of verticals sort of being brought to life, um, mm. and and you mentioned you mentioned um, you mentioned teams. You've talked about Alliance and Team Secret mm. and some of the Australian teams. I mean, the feedback we get from teams is um, many of them love to. Well, many of them are focused on how do we engage our fans beyond just um, how do we engage our fans through tournaments and how do we um, think about our business more broadly than just through the lens of sponsorship and advertising. Mm. So by working closely with esports teams, it's a great way for them to continue to expand their audience and continue to engage with their audiences in a different way. Yeah, and and to, and from, from that point and one you mentioned earlier, um, there's two tangents that I want to bring together. Number one is the... The focus on publishers, if you look at the releases from Gfinity in the UK, if you look at the amount of work that ESL in Australia overseas are doing, um, you look at even Gfinity um, in in Australia, you know, during during the end of their tenure here, you look at Mineski, there's been so much more focus on running things for publishers, not so much running your own events. I think Gfinity said they were making a they call it a, like a 74% operating loss on own run events, whereas they're making like, you know, 100% or more margin on publisher-based events. And I've seen that to be a focus. And the the question for me is, is like I was probing at, is the push away from publisher-led things, because we all know that can be a bit volatile, and then how do we create more sustainability in the industry for people to run things themselves? Using another example for that is where, um, and probably by this, the time this podcast comes out, we'll be announcing a TikTok agency with talent that we're working with, ranging from about one to five million followers. And a lot of the discussion with them, I'm saying, is is the first thing they think about is brand deals. And I'm saying to them is I don't want to have to focus on brand deals because yeah. I've done it before with like Shade, our influencer company that ended up falling over. And it's a lot of hard work to go reach out to brands. You're asking them to pay. You're not making any native money that's coming through the door day to day, right? So my thinking exercise with them is how can we make the best amount of money internally? Look at what some influencers are doing. People like Mitch Orville from Angry Dad, 170,000 Instagram followers. He's selling out every two weeks of like three to 400 hoodies, limited release hoodies, making your own merchandise. You look at Playside where we're based in here as well. There's other influencers have their own meditation apps. There's influencers have their own fitness apps. Yep. Once again, these are things that they wholly control. And if they're a separate company, there's probably equity related to that as well that they can play with in the future raise capital, sell. Um, but it's it's something they have perfect control over. And that's also my concern when you look at a lot of these tournament people that are relying on the publishers and out of homes. We saw what happened in Australia with Call of Duty, for example, when Activision stopped running Call of Duty events. Call of Duty in Australia died entirely. Um, you've seen that with um, Heroes of the Storm globally. You know, Blizzard pulled out. 
gone. You're seeing that with Paladins at the moment as well. They've pulled back. Paladin scene is, is in shaky grounds right now too. So I'm really interested in understanding more about how we can, I guess, internally fund ourselves within esports and not rely so much on the outside brands, like you were saying, and the publishers as well. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not going to talk to any numbers, but Call of Duty, I don't agree that Call of Duty has died uh, in this market. Still, a lot of players and still a very, very loved franchise. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, to clarify, in an esports sense, so there's no esports tournaments. Any of the teams, they're playing overseas, if at all, these days. Yeah, the, the largest tournament we have here is a $10,000 tournament, for example. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right in terms of, I mean, everyone knows that the esports industry, whether it you're a team or influencer that's focused on the category. You're you're very reliant on ad revenue and sponsorship revenue. So, mm. our model, you know, the way we monetize our platform is to stand up tournaments that charge a small monthly subscription, and that subscription is revenue shared with the partner. So, whether it's mm. an influencer or an organizer, we share or a team, um, we share that revenue together. So, we get a lot of positive feedback on the ability that plat- that mogul has to i guess create value versus extract value and Mm. what i mean when i say that is by working together and by standing up annuity revenue streams or you know those regular monthly revenue streams um, if you're an influencer or if you're a team um, is a great way to as you just said you know take a little bit of um, control of your own destiny Mm. Um, because as you know you know if if you can't win every single tournament you go in Um, and so to Mm. to Create value for your brand that um, is less reliant on winning every tournament you're in is a great thing and a positive thing for those businesses. Yeah, and it's it's similar to um, a friend of mine that that runs a, a large agency in Southeast Asia, and his focus, you know, he's working with a lot of TikTok people as well. And I said, look, what's your what's your plan with TikTok? And he said, every time there's a new trend that comes out, I get I capture the t- the top talent and then I move them to YouTube as fast as possible. When Vine comes out like Logan Paul, Jake Paul, Massive Viners, over to YouTube. And now they're selling out arenas in boxing versus other YouTubers. You know, TikTok comes out. He's pushing all of his TikTokers to YouTube for a very similar reason. If you're just making posts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, you're not making any native money off that. They're not selling – YouTube's not selling ads against that. You're not making view. You're not making money per views that are coming out. So this is what a lot of Instagrammers have run into. When the wells start to dry up and, and companies stop approaching them, they stop getting so many inbounds, they've got no way to make money. Sure, they might be reaching a certain amount of people, but if you haven't already developed your own brand that you own or your own way that people are natively passing you money through donations, through Patreon, and maybe you have a podcast or you know selling merchandise, if you haven't done any of that and the world starts to dry up, that's when the alarm bells start to ring and you've got nothing to rest back on. And that's the concern for... Esports teams as well, looking at the pie of the of the global graph for teams specifically, is that so much of their revenue comes from sponsorship right now. You know, a lot of the teams in Australia, it's like 90% plus because not only can you not really win the big tournament pools in Australia, you know, the biggest tournaments you have here are twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 prize pool, but also you're not making, you don't have a largest amount of fans that are hardcore that are buying memberships that are paying for merchandise and things like that too. So it's always a thinking exercise for me is how can you, and we talked about this so much on the podcast, even with FaZe who are leading the, the whole global industry in esports, is how can you diversify your revenue streams as much as possible and how can you pull things from different ways, not lock yourself into long-term contracts with non-exclusive sponsorships, not you know lock yourself off to one section of the industry, be it only esports, only gaming or only influencers, and how can you create a less lumpy ride to get that revenue through from start to finish? 
Yeah, look, we're having similar positive feedback from community groups. I don't know if you saw, you know, we announced a partnership with Summoner Society, the, yeah. you know, which is Australia's largest League of Legends community group, with um, SG Sports uh, um, just in the same week as PAX a couple of months ago. And, you know, as you know, Chris, a lot of the community groups are run by very dedicated players who, you know, are at university all day or they're in a in a day job and then they get home and start planning tournaments and rallying players to um to have a match together and yeah they want to spend more time playing the games rather than organizing tournaments so we see mogul playing a very important role there um in giving those community groups the tools tool set that allows them to very quickly stand up a a consumer or a player facing experience that tells them which tournaments are on when and what time and what the prizes is and what the rules are and here's a video if you want to learn a bit bit more about the tournament or about um, you know what we do as a as a community group um, and if you've got questions you can chat in the hub in real time to the, the volunteers or, or the community group members that are putting on that show um, yeah it's a great platform to allow those dedicated passionate groups of players in, in those community groups to spend more time doing what they love, which is playing the games. So mm. um, that's another exciting area where um, you know it's not just it's not just money or, or, or additional revenue streams that we're creating, but it's giving people back time to focus on what they love to do. Um, so th- that's another great benefit of, of the platform. And in some cases, you know, not so much for volunteer groups, but if it's a if it's a team that's got you know, lots of people employed to to think about how they engage with their audience. It's a great way to extract cost from their business mm. because we've automated everything. Um, we've automated the creation. We've automated the administration and the pricing. Um, and as I said, the hubs are, are very easy to create if you've got the assets. And so it, it helps them extract costs, which, as you know, is a big factor for teams that are still still trying to grow their brand and still trying to add more markets to their global reach. Yeah, and the other the other thing I wanted to touch on that I led into before is a, a concern of myself and others that we've talked about in the industry is companies coming in and not adding value or bringing a new thing to the industry, more so coming in and taking from others. So, so a direct example of that is a lot of people talk to me and say, hey, I want to make the next tier one global esports team and I want to focus on winning only. And I say, okay, well, what makes you different to Fnatic, to Cloud9, to TSM, to all those? And that's what most of their branding is based on, is being in the industry, being really good and winning. Or people say, hey, I want to make another esports tournament platform or an esports tournament company. I say, okay, what's going to make you bring in new ideas and interest to the industry that Mineski events, that ESL, that um, you know other global players can't do? So I'd like to learn more from you. You touched on it. A little bit as well. What does what does Mogul bring to help grow the industry, and what does Mogul help bring that's different to any of the other tournament platforms out there? Because, because you and I well know over the past ten years, I've I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of tournament platforms come and go. So, what's the differentiation that Mogul brings that will allow it to be around for a long time? Well, the the short answer to that is um, the the platform brings the ability to create that um, branded or curated experience for your player base or for your fan base or for your follower base mm. and share in the monetization or the revenue revenue creation of, of those efforts so um, we see ourselves playing an extremely important role in the industry um, and obviously it's very well established in some markets um, especially outside of Australia in, in in parts of Asia and doing very well in North America and parts of Europe 
um, here in Australia, it's still early days, as you know. So a lot of our focus um, when we're working with partners is how can we unlock value together? How can we help them get the most out of what they're trying to do and the the investment that they're making in the esports business by utilising our tool set? So, yeah, we've got a, a very different approach. Um, our model, we, we, we know our model is unique in terms of the services that we're unlocking with our partners and we're continuing to sign partners which you've seen and mentioned some of them already and there's a lot more to come so we really believe in what we're doing we continue to get positive feedback on our set of tools um, and services and so yeah we, we see ourselves playing a very important role in the industry to continue to bring that to different partners around the world and help them help them put on a better show but also participate in some of the revenue that's been created at the same time. Sure, and and being the the C, CMO of mobile, I want to um, I want you to draw or, or teach us a bit about comparisons of marketing in the past versus marketing now within the gaming and esports space, and drawing it back to your history with publishers and developers versus now with mobile. Where is where do you see a lot of the upside for advertising your products within the esports space? Are you mainly focused on say you know digital and, and media, mainly focused on social? Are you looking at influencer advertising? Is it is it a mix across the board? And let's keep this separate from say the the B two B. Um, interactions you've been having with Secret and Alliance, etc., which is which is obviously in part a marketing activity as well as in part a user acquisition activity. Yeah, I think at, a, at in broad brushstrokes, um, and if you think about the Australian market or the North American market and parts of Europe, in the past a lot of focus was on that retail day one launch, as you know, at retail. Mm. Um, so, what did your game look like? in a Best Buy or in a JB Hi-Fi or in a EB Games or a GameStop store. Mm. Um, whereas today, um, I mean, as you know, it's the, the model has, cha- has changed. I mean, retail is still a very relevant part of the industry, but the model, in my view, has changed. So what you're doing online, how you're thinking about your media investment across social channels or th- in display, um, how you're engaging and working with influencers to get your game out there or your brand out there um, and how you're thinking about content to make sure that players want to keep coming back to your franchise and how often do you do you talk to your fan base or your player base about that content is, has completely changed and been revolutionised. And you know, I think we all, those of us in the industry, know that gamers are playing fewer different games. Um, they're just playing the same games for longer. So that's really changed the way you market to those players mm. and so marketers in the industry today need to be really thoughtful about how do you keep creating value and bringing better experiences to those existing players whilst at the same time being thoughtful about how you continue to acquire and grow the number of players that are interested in your franchise um, engage them and, and stop them from churning out of your your brand mm. and it's just goes back to the discussion we talked about before is it's so much about community these days and if you look at you know we did we did some research on games on steam for example you look at the the games that have any lasting power they're all online and they're all community based you know there's barely ever a game that doesn't have an online component that lasts in the top 10 games of steam more than a few weeks after release you know everyone will buy the red dead redemption or they'll buy the latest whatever single player title spider-man on ps4 i'll play the hell out of it but then it'll it'll wane off so you know how are you making money off those users throughout their lifetime and not having to go through that model of all right 
games here, it's done, it was a hit, it wasn't a hit, how do we make that money next? Rather than thinking about, say, you know, Dota 2, who a year ago or so, I think they announced, you know, we're going to bi-weekly patches. So every two weeks we're releasing a patch that'll update the game a bit, keep people interested, and every now and then they come in with a big one after, like, the international, change the game up even more and just keep constantly engaging their users. Yeah, and community, uh, the community and grassroots players, um, and especially community and grassroots players who are interested in pe- competitive play, are absolutely front and centre of our consumer segmentation strategy at Mogul. So, um, depending on who you talk to, if you if you just focused on elite pro players, there's probably ten thousand of those globally. Um, mm. That doesn't mean we don't all want to aspire to be as good as them. Um, and that doesn't mean that um, there's not a lot of fantastic content um, to be to be viewed or consumed when you you hear from those players or you watch a stream that that that, that those players or retired players are put, putting on. But for, at Mogul, our absolute focus is community and grassroots players. Um, but we s- still spend a lot of time working um, with amateur players or, 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 or pro teams and their players because it's very significant um, from an aspirational perspective. And I think it's, mm. as you know, you know, with your time as a pro player, um, it's something that most of us aspire to achieve one day and not all of us are going to get there, but um, it's mm. still an important role in, in the way you go to market from a marketing perspective. Yeah, what you were just saying is is something that um, resonated with me well that I was talking about, it was earlier this week or last week in a consultancy session with someone about business development in, in the esports and gaming space and drawing it back to, say, my time at Thermaltake, not having much budget, trying to find things to promote and talking about the grassroots. I think so many people in esports all the time it's a massive buzzword that no one actually really focuses on. Everyone talks about, we need to look at the grassroots, we need to focus on the grassroots because there are so many people there, but at the same time, all of these esports teams, all these tournaments, etc., are just throwing money at the top level. They're trying to be the biggest. It's happening in CSGO at the moment. All the players are saying we're super burnout because every tournament provider is trying to be the biggest and best tournament in CSGO in the world from every single region. But the grassroots community has been, A, underserviced, but also, B, I think, underfunded and underlooked at by the companies. And I was trying to explain to this this person in the, in the consultancy session that, when you're when you're sponsoring a tournament, you can think about grassroots where the players are the consumers. So your metric your metric of success, similar to say Mogul, is how many people have signed up to my tournament, not how many people are watching my tournament. And I think a lot of the time people are advertised on how many viewers can I get to my Twitch stream and what monetization can I back off that, whether it's subscriptions, donations or sponsorship, and they're not thinking about how many people can I get into my tournament where the players are the consumers? How can I run an amateur to mid-level tournament where the players are the consumers? And if you think about it from a sponsor's point of view, you know, when I was at Thermaltake, a a company would contact me and say, hey, we're running a $5,000 Counter-Strike Source Nationals tournament back in, say, 2012, where all the best teams in Australia are going to play. Can you give me a 1000 bucks and five keyboards for the winners? And I'd say, well, the winners are going to be Team Immunity and they're sponsored by SteelSeries. So there's absolutely no point (laughs) for me to A, advertise with my logo next to them, but B, give them keyboards because they're going straight to eBay, which they did. Um, when, when I did sponsor them at any one time. So how can I do an amateur tournament where instead of worrying about getting 5,000 concurrent viewers on Twitch TV and putting my ad against that and running ad rolls, how can I get 5,000 amateur-level players to sign up and then I give some of them my keyboards and seed it out to these micro-influencers within their own communities? 
Yeah, well, at Mogul, we we know we can do both. So we will partner with a brand um, or we partner with publishers to help put on an online tournament. So obviously it's a lot more cost-effective than trying to put on that national final, that regional final. Um, it's mm. uh, has a much greater longevity than a weekend or a Saturday-only final. So that allows you to run a tournament for two weeks or f- 12 weeks and really um, build the exposure, build some momentum, and then still run those online finals that are broadcast through Twitch or through Facebook Live or um, through Mixer and um, still drive the audience. So from a publisher perspective, we get a lot of positive feedback on helping them to manage um, something that in the past has been a very complex area of the business. So if you think about grassroots and community, mm. you you from a publisher perspective, you give the, give out the community guidelines and trust that people that have committed to adhering to those community guidelines will do that. So by running grassroots and community events with Mogul, you can still make sure that your brand experience that players are engaging with on our platform is as the creators intended mm-hmm. um, and you know that winners are going to get paid you know that a professional tournament's going to be organized you get to un- if they've opted in to share data or to engage with the brand you 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 know you get to to benefit from that and if there's entry fees or a subscription involved there's a revenue share there as well for the, for, for as as part of as part of activation together so we see mogul playing a very important role with grassroots and community whether it's for publishers or, or organisers or influencers or teams. Yeah, and I think going, drawing a line back to like what I was saying before about, um, you know, not non so much reliance on uh, publishers and sponsors and such, and we've had this discussion a lot internally here at Big Esports, it's myself and the board, is how do you own a product? What do you own and build a brand? And that was part of my discussion with Joe Hashem, who's an investor in us who won the World Series of Poker many moons ago, won the championships, is that his worst-case scenario thinking was, okay, I, I spend $25 million to buy an Overwatch World League spot. However, by the looks of it, players come and go from these teams all the time. So I don't really own the, the players. Plus, if I own this Overwatch World League spot and the game dies, well, then what do I actually own? I'm kind of renting... I'm renting the IP off a publisher, off someone else. I have no control over the game. I have no control over the community with Overwatch, the updates and such. And also, especially looking at, say, CSGO kind of market, you seem to have no control over the players either because they come and go from these tournaments all the time. So if your reliance is on the game and on the players and you own neither of those processes and you can't control a thing, what do you actually really own throughout that whole process? And that's been a discussion with us internally. You know, if we're, say right now, we're helping EA launch their latest Jedi game, we're doing five or so projects with NVIDIA in Australia at once across influences of some esports stuff. But if that was 100% of our business model, what do we actually own? We don't really own anything there. We, EA can go to someone else. We, we There's no way you can sign exclusivity with them for something like that. NVIDIA, we have a great la- relationship with them, but ultimately they could go to something else. We also don't own the influences we're working with because we're reaching out, contacting them and working with them you know, through their ABNs in, in a once-off type relationship. So if that was 100% of our business model, which is for some other people, you don't actually own anything in that space besides your contact books, which can also leave with your head of sales because they're the one that's built the relationships. You know, if, if I was an employee of Big and I left, well, I've built those relationships myself. So the business then owns nothing. And that's, I think, another way to think about it too when you're um, Absolutely. divesting from only working with publishers, only working with brands is 
do you have an Intel Extreme Masters, for example, that ESL owns with Intel that's been around for 10, 11 years? Because yes, that is a, a joint event. It is a Spain-sponsored event, but people know that as that's ESL. Do you have ESL 1? Do you have the Gfinity League? But it's about finding, I guess, a profitable way to do that and looking at the, the books for Gfinity. So far, it's not a profitable way for them to do that. Um, and you can't say for ESL for sure because they don't lift, they don't open their books up to the public. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about the mogul platform is we work with partners, whether it's an influencer or a team or an organiser, and it's their brand front and centre. So when they're attracting players and and they've opted in to, to share data, it's it it becomes their data. Um, it, mm. They. They work together with us to monetize their player base. So um, we've got a very unique model from that sense in that um, we truly believe that to be globally successful and to scale as quickly as we intend to scale, we need to do it through those partnerships. And so our platform is built to create that joint value or that shared value. Um, and, you know, I said it before, it's all about value creation versus value extraction. And so that's why we've been announcing so many new partnerships because it's unique in the marketplace. Um, and as I said earlier, it, it, it delivers extra time, it, it removes costs, and it helps our partners provide a really compelling solution for their players or their fans, depending on which vertical they're in. Mm. And do you see that as, as the main path to profitability for you? Like you're talking about that, that focus on the you know, average revenue per user, getting those subscriptions up? Look, we're a listed company, so um, and we're still essentially pre-revenue, so we haven't announced um, forecasts moving forward. Mm. But what I can tell you is, if, if you look at our platform, you know, if you spent half an hour on mogul.gg, you'd very quickly see that as of this week, we've got twelve partners that are up and running on the platform with branded hubs whether they're first party, second party or third party. Um, a, a number of those already have a monthly subscription component added. Um, mm-hmm. Nearly all of those have a membership, you know, a free membership component added. Um, so if you think about um, three months ago, we didn't have any hubs. Um, yeah, the exciting's pr- the, the future's pretty exciting for us when we can stand these up in a matter of minutes once you've got your brand assets. Of course, you need to agree on, on the commercials prior to doing all of that. But mm-hmm. once we've got alignment with a partner, it's very easy and seamless for them to execute and start to create extra revenues for, for their brand. Um, but at doing that with a really compelling value exchange where they're delivering value to their audience and engaging their audiences in a way that they haven't been able to engage them before through Mm. putting on online tournaments um, that are branded to a team or to an influencer or to an organiser. And and expanding on that again, um, like you were saying with the influencer and the team side of things, this has been a lot of discussion we've had um, internally with Playside, you know, developing their influencer apps and, and with some of my friends who are varying stages in the influencer market from, you know, 10,000 subscribers to 5 million is do you own your audience? Do you actually own your fans? And this is a very similar thing to what I was talking about before is do you own a product? Do you have a brand? If you're solely relying on YouTube to sell ads against you and the YouTube adpocalypse comes through like it did, you know, I've got friends who make edgy content that's not always the best for brands that are making $20 off a million views. So do you really own those fans or does YouTube own those fans? What if YouTube closes down your account? What if you get banned off Twitch TV like someone else I know did and that was his main line of income? Gone. All of a sudden. And then he doesn't have an email list. He doesn't have an app. He doesn't have a website. 
he's got followers only on there. What if he gets banned off Twitch and Twitter and he simply doesn't exist before? You know, polarizing or not, you can see that happening to people like Alex Jones from InfoWars, you know, he got all of his social accounts shut down. And then for him, he's obviously built an email list, so he still has some kind of fans. Or you see the other um, very polarizing figure, Milo Yiannopoulos, who got banned off most of the um, of, of most of the social media sites as well. Is do you actually own your fans, or do they just belong to the platform you're a part of? And I think that's what a lot of the influencers that are working with Playside are understanding as well. In the fact that okay, I've got an Instagram account, but what if that dries up? What if I fall out of favor with the algorithm, get shadow banned? Whatever happens, people will have a mass exodus of Instagram like youngsters are of Facebook. Um, at least now I've got an app. I've got another way I can integrate with my fans. I've got an email list that they sign up to that I can hit them with remarketing on. And similar, like you were saying with Mogul with the data capture, because there's only so much data that Facebook, Twitch, et cetera, are going to give you. But if you own those fans on another platform and you can share that data internally with Mogul and the person and, and the, the person that's conducting those tournaments, and that's such a powerful way to actually capture your own audience. Yeah, we work very closely with our partners. Um, of course, we need to – we're a listed company. Um, we're very careful to ensure that we're compliant with local privacy laws and the consumers have opted in. Um, but um, w- w- we'll share monthly statements with our partners around how how their um, subscription is doing. You know, we're, we're – um, a great partner in the way that we work with um, partners, whether they're influencers or teams or or game publishers um, or organisers. So it's an important part of our go-to-market strategy um, and we're not going to get to where we want to go if we don't work closely with partners to expand globally. Yeah, fantastic. So what does the what does the future look like with with Mogul at the moment in the short term? You've obviously been I've seen a lot of um, positions being hired recently listed online. You mentioned before that you're pre revenue as well. Um, obviously, you've been looking through the the four C's. They get released on the public market as well. What does the what does the next three to to six months look like for Mogul as you progress? Look for us, it's all about. Um really f- doubling down on that consumer segmentation strategy which is that laser-like focus on grassroots and community players um, as, as you probably know Chris there's 2.5 billion gamers globally we're a global platform we're already localized in seven markets so there's a long way to go and a lot of a lot of players that we still think uh, are going to get a lot of value uh, well we know they're going to get a lot of value out of our platform and can have a lot of fun playing tournaments on our platform um, we're going to continue to build out, build out our content strategy, and I've already touched on um, the first-party content where Mogul is putting on the show, um, the role of second-party content where we work closely with partners, and third-party content where organisers or influencers will just use our tool, tool set. So um, we want to continue to focus on those um, different types of content. As I've already touched on, we do that through um, working and promoting directly to players who are at the core of everything we do um, in the case of first party or working with those partner verticals that I've already touched on, whether it's the the global teams, um, organisers and community groups, influencers or the game publishers themselves. So, Mm. um, look, you can imagine with my background, I'm having some some very interesting discussions with a lot of different partners from all of those verticals um, getting great feedback on the platform and the work that we're doing and our model, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, a lot of a lot of companies and a lot of firms in this space are still using 
Google Docs and Chicken Wire and Bubblegum and a few rubber bands to put on an esports tournament. So, mm. you know, we help partners to professionalise. We help them to really manage something that's um, it can get pretty messy pretty quickly if you don't do it right. Um, and I've already spoken about that tool su- suite of the hubs and the admin tools and the creation tools and the payment tools um, that mm. really allow um, industry, uh, companies in this space or firms in this space to put on a professional offer for their players, to put on a great show and to benefit in partnership with us. So, yeah, we'll continue to um, to, to focus on that as a team um, mm-hmm. and we're not going to stop until we're in as many markets as we can get to. We're in a hurry to do it. Um, if you look at our platform, we're already in Indonesian and Thai and Vietnamese, fully localised. A um, couple of weeks ago, we added Portuguese and Arabic um, and simplified Mandarin. Um, and we, we recently added Japanese. So um, there's a lot more languages to come. Um, but uh, we've got nothing to announce at the moment around around that. But um, it's a really exciting time ahead for the company. Yeah, and I was talking to the Australian Computer Society CEO the other day because they just announced a... At their reimagination event a couple of days ago, they're putting together a $5 million AUD early stage tech innovation fund that they've invited other people to invest in, but ACS is kicking it off with five mil. And I had a chat to him, and for anyone who's in Australia listening to this, they are open to esports applications for that, esports and gaming, but it has to be platform and, and tech-based. And I was explaining to him that I feel like in the past, tournaments were the major focus for a long time. Um, especially, say, around the time ESL came to Australia, like 2016, um, with their live facility. Then it was into teams for ages, teams raising 20, 30 million, you know, Drake investing in 100 Thieves and Scooter Braun and looking at Offset, you know, investing into FaZe, Fnatic picking up their first series of funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then tournament, uh, sorry, and then venues and mega facilities has been the latest one. But I think sitting in the background for a long time has been platforms, has been technology and things behind it. You've seen things like Mogul come into the spotlight. You've seen Juked.gg, which is a uh, which is uh, had Ben on LinkedIn Lives and here before ex ex Twitch alumni from the beginning, um, which is aggregating Twitch streams. You're seeing Stream Hatchet and these kind of uh, data scraping services. Um, you're seeing influencer search services, things like uh, WeHype, which will shoot in influencer advertising natively into streams and, and help you work with a lot of influencers. And I'm seeing that these are the quiet things that maybe aren't as sexy to some and to VCs or to the mainstream media. They're not as not filled with as many NBA players and rappers, but I feel like these are, you know, the, the next high growth things that are coming along, all because of the reasons that we've dotted throughout this whole process. A, you own a technology. costs a lot of money to build technology. You have some great back-end. B, you own a lot of data. C, you're able to build a lot of partnerships, which is also attached to that data as well. And then D, you're still able to build a brand that's based off the back of that. So you've got the B2B, you've got the B2C, and you've got the B2B2C as well. And it's going to be really interesting to see the growth as you um, go to flick that switch on to the revenue. Because like you were saying, you're, you're essentially pre-revenue right now. And, and um you know, looking through the 4C, there's a lot of money being spent, um, you know, in director's fees and, and on um, on staff and the expansion and marketing and, and development. So it's going to be really interesting, I think, for everyone to track as as Mogul tries to then turn itself into the profitable listed company and, and what that process looks like. Yeah, that's the plan. It's an exciting time ahead. Um, as I said, we're a listed company, so, you know, we, we, we don't talk to forecasts. Um, but as I said earlier, if you look at the, 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 the speed at which we're adding hubs, 
and then think about um, what happens as we continue to um, add more and more hubs more rapidly. It gets very interesting very quickly. So, you know, our focus is on um, delivering to our investors and delivering on our commitments that um, we've made. Um, we we, tra- we went on a trading halt yes- yesterday to have another to have a capital raise, which has been very well supported. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we've got great support and a great plan moving ahead. So we're really excited about what is happening in 2020. Yeah, fantastic. It's going to be really interesting to see. And I, and I don't think we need to get into too much of the discussion around what being a listed company is because we've had that now with Jamie and, and Herb and, and Will who have had the podcast as well. But it's it's really interesting process, I think, for people who are new or even old in the industry and reminding people that, that this data is, is public and it has to be legally. You know, you can you can see Gfinity and what they're doing behind the scenes. You can see yourself. You can see Emerge Gaming. And now you can see Astralis, which is listing with their IPO as an esports team as well. And I think for anyone who's looking into that space, use that to your advantage because you can see what people are doing behind the scenes. Because in the past, esports has been so secretive and with private business, of, of course it is. But it's interesting to see now that um, kind of the curtains are being pulled back on a lot of these companies and, and seeing where the growth comes from. Fantastic. So, what about what about you personally? How are you feeling within the within the CMO role as mogul, and how's your switch been from you know the publisher and and um, developer and Microsoft side of things across to esports? Well, I'm, I'm loving it. As I said earlier, it doesn't sound, it doesn't feel like work. Um, my role, I'm focused on the marketing, um, the sales and business development side with our partners, and then also our content from a tournament operations perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but most days it doesn't feel like work. So you know, I'm six months in. We've achieved a lot in six months. Um, we're continuing to, to evolve and build out our team um, that will deliver on our vision for getting into a lot more markets and bringing a lot more hubs um, to our partner base um, again because we're listed we, we can't talk about that too much at this stage but um, really energised about our plans for the future and, and what's ahead Fantastic and uh, if, if people want to follow yourself or Mogul Online where can they do so? Um, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook um, or check out our website at mogul.gg Fantastic, thanks for joining us today Mark Thanks Chris and thank you for listening in to the Big Esports Podcast. For any of the show notes or anything we've talked about today or to see any of our other episodes, you can head to bigesports.gg or slash podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 